If you're going to be taking notes, just take this title down, Understanding the Calling. Understanding the Calling. I want you to open to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I'm just kidding. 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Let's open to Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle and set apart And set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I want you to notice the the punctuation here as verse 1 closes and verse 2 opens. You notice it's hyphenated right here. I don't know if your Bible does that because we're reading from the NIV. I don't know if that is that way in your your, uh, Bible. But right here. He stops the sentence, but the sentence isn't stopped. Because what he's doing is he's about to go in and define the gospel of God. He stops. It's almost like in modern day punctuation, if you were to put a semicolon right there, it'd be the same thing. I've stopped that idea, but I'm going to carry that idea on without giving a period to it. That's what he's done. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes in to define the gospel of God. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are the definition of the gospel of God. That's what he says here. Now look at verse 2. He says, the gospel he promised. The gospel he promised beforehand. Now, everything that we have learned thus far about what the gospel is, that's a very important thought that leads verse 2 wide open. Jay, can you go back to verse 2? The gospel He promised beforehand. What does that tell us? Well, that does two things. Number one, it equips you. And number two, it puts God on the hook. Come on. Come on, sis. Oh, you know what I'm about to say. You see, it helps you because Jesus wasn't a new idea. God wasn't on His throne, Philadelphia, going, what are we going to do? we got to come up with a plan. Jocelyn, we got to come up with a plan. Because we're in a pickle here. And no one's even invented pickles yet. We've got to figure... Jesus was not a new idea. Remember what the, how the Bible frames Jesus. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. So Jesus Christ was not a new concept. He was promised beforehand. What does that mean? He was prophesied about. I always go back here, and I'm always going to go back here. Genesis 3, 15. 
It's not on the screen. If you want to look it up and you don't know it already, the thousand times that I've already said this verse, it is what, remember the word? Remember that weird theological descriptor I call the proto-evangelium? Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. Oh yeah, he's going to crush your head. Remember what God said to the serpent. He's going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's the first prophetic statement made about Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news that was promised beforehand. God is on the hook because He said He was going to come in bodily form to be a Savior, the Messiah. But it equips us because we can say in, in retrospect, well, look, He says it right here. That's important. So here we are describing, defining the Gospel. Verse 2, the Gospel He promised beforehand, Jay, go ahead, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but if the, if, if, if the Apostle were to take this opening's first three verses to an English teacher, he'd get marked down as a run-on sentence. He's just not done promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding His Son. And then He defines the Son in two ways. One, look at verse 3. Who as to His human nature, in other words, the man that was here that can be historically proven, who to his human nature was a descendant of David. That's traceable. Verse 4. And who through the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of God. Notice the word Spirit here is capitalized, signifying a proper descriptor. This is divinity we're talking about. The Spirit of holiness was declared now, these two words are extremely important. I know we don't look at words like with as important, but they're really important. Was declared with power to be the Son of God. Okay, anybody can describe, well, Jocelyn's one of the singers. Riley is the drummer. Etc. It's a, but this isn't just some declaration. Christine is the pianist. This is not some casual declaration. This is a declaration made with power. How do you declare something in this context with power? You have to define with power. Well, guess what? You don't have to go very far because the apostle defines it for you. To be the Son of God, He was declared with power to be the Son of God. Well, that's a biggie. How? By His resurrection from the dead. 
You want to display a little power? Die. And then show up three days later. That's power. Guess what? Good news. That's the same power you and I are resurrected from our death as well. The power of God to raise the dead. And then he goes on and he finishes verse 4. The finishing touches on this definition of who the Son was, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. (laughs) This begs the question, do you understand the calling? Go back to verse 1 for me, Jay. Do you understand the calling that's been placed on your life? Now, don't get me wrong, and I'm not about to belittle anything here. I'm not talking about the calling that you've got to do something very specifically. Like, I'm called to to be a pastor, and I am called, gifted to play this bass. Well, at least, I hope I'm gifted to play the bass. That could be a real presumptuous statement if some people are going... I'm not talking about I'm called to be a painter. I'm called to be a singer. I'm called to be a dancer. I'm called to be a fill-in-your-favorite descriptive word here. I'm talking about do you understand your call as placed forth in the Word of God concerning us all? Look at what Paul says. He opens the book of Romans by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Do you get that? And I'm not talking about do you get that intellectually. I'm not talking about do you get that academically. I'm not talking about do you get that, that Paul wrote that and okay, he was set apart for the gospel of God, called to be an No, 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 I'm not talking about, I'm talking about do you understand the calling placed upon you to be a perpetuator of the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do I ask that question? Because many, and I don't know if I want to go so far as to say most, but I'm willing to go so far as to say most of us But I do know that many of us, and maybe it's largely, and I can't promise you I know this. There's no empirical evidence, no research that I've put into this to be able to say, this may be a uniquely Western culture kind of vibe. And by Western, I don't mean Texas. I mean the United States. Because we are filled with messages where you and I are supposed to be oh so ever prosperous and blessed and highly favored and so on and so forth, where when life comes down the pike for us, we have this idea where we either throw it into neutral or go all the way into reverse and say, hmm, this isn't really what everybody's saying it's supposed to be. I think there's, a, there's an element 
of pollution in the preaching in the West. I fear that we are, we have been trained to believe that we are to be this high and exalted thing that will not and does not touch our exalted spirituality. And if it does, something's inherently wrong with us. That, brothers and sisters, is error. How many of you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Show me. Okay. I've got okay. How many of you have ever been slapped right across the face with life? Well, according to a lot of preaching, and I am so no on my not on my sermon right now. According to a lot of preaching, that shouldn't be happening. Ladies and gentlemen, that is error. Don't you believe that for a moment? I look across this congregation and I see people that I know for a fact who are Bible-believing, Jesus-aligned, born-again, some Spirit-filled believers who have been hit by freight trains that have the, the word painted right down their side, life. And I bet you I could sit down right now, having called on someone to stand up and testify to how Jesus brought you through an absolute train wreck of a scenario. And each time they got done and sat down, someone else could stand up and talk. If we believe some of the stuff that's going on in pulpits around our country, then something's wrong with you. Look at me. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. Our calling. And what, let me back up just. Because of that, we tend to take on this idea, this concept, this, these feelings, this weight, this, this bulk that because life is happening to me and I am somehow not being transcended above it and beyond it, I must not be cutting the mustard. I must not be living up to some spiritual standard that is obviously too high for me to attain. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. You have been redeemed. And life is worth the living if for no other reason just because He lives. I'm, I'm going I'm to delve in here now. I want you to understand that our calling, our calling as believers, just and I'm not talking about preachers. I'm not talking about missionaries. 
I'm not talking about pastors and, and evangelists. That's not what I, I'm talking about is just believers. People who go to school, have homework, ride a bus, or get picked up by mom and dad. I'm talking about believers who just go to work, have to clock in and clock out, who make a paycheck, who have to pay taxes, who have to raise their children, watch them start dating, kill and privately bury the occasional boyfriend. Wow, I thought that was going to go better. Marry them off, grow old, with the occasional grandchild coming into the picture, and then just passing on, leaving your believing children to deal with that. That's life. That's just, isn't it? That's just living. Yeah. Our calling. Just that. Just those kind of people. Our calling, listen to me, primarily, not first and foremost. Not the first thing. Not the primary thing. Our calling is not to be holy men and women. That is not your calling. Our calling is first and foremost to be proclaimers of the gospel of God. You see, why would that be? Well, simple. If, if you wanted to understand what it was, and you don't, let's, hypothetically, you don't understand. And I'm a musician, so I always default to music. You want to know what it is to be a drummer. And you've never played drums. You've heard them on recordings, on the radio, at church, concert settings. But you think, well, I, I need to, I'd like to find out what that, and you walk up to Trey Ackerson, or my son, and you say, what is, would you actually go to a plumber to find out what it would be like to be a drummer? I'm just curious, man, while you're bent over fixing my drain and I'm seeing way too much of your backside. What is it like to play drums? And I can just see this from underneath your cabinet saying, I have no idea. Why are you even asking me this? No, you go to a drummer. Trey, if, if I didn't have the fog, if I was as musically inclined as this carpet, and I walked up to you and said, could you try to explain to me what it, what it feels like to be a drummer? Could you in a... Yes or a no. Could you do that? Yeah. Yeah. You could. So why is it that we're the ones, just common everyday people, why is it that our calling is the calling to be proclaimers of the gospel of God? It's simple. We have become the recipients. We are the beneficiaries of that gospel. Who better to ask than us?
bet you if I went through this congregation today and, and, and I knew some special, specific thing about your life, you could explain that thing just in common, everyday terminology. Guys, that's us. We are the recipients of the good news of God through Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries of the gospel. This is our primary calling. Being proclaimers of the gospel. The one all important thing in life, in the life of believers in general is that the gospel of God should be recognized as according to Oswald Chambers the abiding reality. Well, what does that mean? Chip, what in the world does the abiding reality even mean? We're talking about regular folk, you and me, preaching the gospel. And that according to Chambers, it needs to be the abiding reality. What does that mean? That the gospel should be this abiding reality. Well, I think the way that we figure that out is very, very simple. We look at the three words that make up the abiding in reality. Let's look at them. The words can teach us. First, let's look at the word the. How many of you ever think about the word the? It's kind of like thinking about the word a. A. And I don't mean a. Like the Fonz. I'm talking about A. We don't think about the word A. We don't think about the word the. But what's funny about not thinking about things is when you do, you find out how amazingly insightful and informative they can be. The word the is what's known as a determiner. Who here knew that? Oh, smart Alec, right here in the center going, yeah, I kind of knew that, man, I'm sorry. You're an idiot, I knew it. Thanks, brah. What is a determiner? You just went from a little three-letter word to a great big word. Why? Well, because a determiner is important. A determiner is something that determines how we interpret how we perceive the word that comes after it. You see, we can change abiding reality to a totally different thing if we extract the word the and insert the word a or an. It's an abiding reality. What does that tell us? There's more than one. But that's the problem. V determines how we react or interpret, understand what abiding react. There's only one. There isn't another. It is the abiding reality. A determiner modifies, describes, or introduces something. In our case, the describes 
it means only one. So the abiding reality is the because there's no other abiding reality. Let's go to the next word, abiding. Why not? Kicks and giggles. Abiding is simply meaning enduring. It's enduring. The only one that endures. That, in layman's terms, lasts a long time. And finally, reality. What is reality? Reality is the state of things as they actually are. Not something that's idealistic or what's notional, meaning meaning exists only in theory. See, that's not what reality means. The, there's one, long-lasting and enduring reality, meaning the state of things as it actually exists. Got a high-frequency ring. That's what the gospel is. The, the only one, enduring state of existence as it really is. That's our gospel. Not the state of things that might be, but actually are. So, let's just just get this, boil this down and make it simple. The gospel is then the abiding reality. simply means that the gospel, the good news, and this you need to, if you're a note taker, write this down. The good news of free redemption through Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. It doesn't get more complicated than that. The good news of free redemption through Jesus Christ is the single and ever-enduring, never-ending message for mankind while simultaneously being the immutable, unchanging position, the unchanging stance of God. That's the gospel as the enduring reality. The gospel is as simple as the good news of free redemption through Jesus Christ. If you're having trouble preaching the gospel, that's all you need to know. But as workers in the kingdom, you need to recognize the fact that the gospel is the single, ever-enduring, never-ending message for mankind while simultaneously being the unchanging, immutable position and stance of God. You are redeemed. Will you accept that and be saved? It doesn't, it won't, and it can't change. That is the message of the gospel. Free redemption through Jesus Christ. It doesn't, it won't, and it can't change. Why? Because He doesn't change. Go ahead. You know you want to. The gospel is a fixed position. It is the abiding reality. The good news is singular. It is unique. It is exclusive and will last forever. The gospel is the unending truth. Reality. 
the state of things as they actually exist. Now listen to me careful. We've gotten through the nuts and bolts. Let's get real. Reality, the state of things as they actually exist, is not found in human goodness. It is not found in what we perceive to be human holiness. It is not there. The abiding reality is not found in our notion of heaven, nor our notion of hell. Which is interesting. Because when we begin worrying about our goodness and our holiness, we begin worrying about heaven and hell. And in doing that, you listen to me, in doing that, we devoid the merit of the gospel, free redemption through Jesus Christ. Why? Because we turn the notion of redemption on its ear, and instead of placing it in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then Him three days later jettisoning, for that was really powerful, while simultaneously being annoying. guess they couldn't hear me. While, and this is, this is uber hot, it got a high frequency tinge to it that needs to be extracted at all costs, with or without dental Novocaine. Don't care, get it out of here. <clears throat> now, if you were to ask my wife right now, what is Michael doing? She would say he's trying to get his thoughts back together. <laughs> While right now I'm trying to just waste time, fill time, because I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Still doing it. <laughs> and we're still doing it. We take, the, we take the merit away from what Jesus did. And we put it on ourselves. Oh, life, as we discussed already, is happening to me. Something must be wrong. My flesh has risen up in me, and I'm angry, and we all know about me, at the driver. Something's happening. Look. Your redemption through Christ's work and your acceptance in that redemption causing you to be saved does not change you from human to something else that doesn't act, sound, or speak, or even smell like a human. You're still human. You're stuck with it. It's just that you're a saved human. Linda, can I get an amen? amen? I know. We love. We love to act the Christ-like, pious part. And you know what? As we grow, mature, and change, 
old things should pass away. And I just took that verse out of context. So don't anybody... I use that for this illustration. That's out of context. Don't think that that's what that means. When you are redeemed and you accept, you accept Christ's free gift, then in His eyes, from the throne down, old things have passed away. You are saved. But... For our purposes this morning, we should act as we grow and mature like old things do pass away. We're not cussing like sailors anymore. We're not drinking ourselves into oblivion because the work week was hard. We're not smoking crack because we just need to escape the situation in our marriage. We're not going out and finding someone else to spend the night with because they just don't understand. Old things should pass away. Why? Because you are becoming new. I made the I made the the illustration weeks ago. You stop needing diapers and doing all that business on yourself because you've grown past it. But those things don't make you saved. Look at me, everybody. Whether you want to believe it. And whether you want to take it into yourself or not, you've been redeemed. Accept it. And if you acknowledge Him as the only begotten Son of God, the one who died on a cross, was buried in three days, was raised again, then you're saved. Get it through your head and realize, you know what? I may just be human. But I'm as saved as the day is long. The need to grasp and understand this is the most vital need of the Christian today. As workers, we have to get used to the revelation that redemption is the only reality. Our Need to go about thinking that we're somehow bad people is not reality. It's a lie. And I'm not going full-blown SBC on you. If you don't know what that is, that's Southern Baptist Convention. Because I don't like preaching about other denominations. It's a waste of my time. When I've got a Jesus to preach about, they don't matter. total waste of time. We have been redeemed. It has happened in the light of that fact. We must understand that personal holiness, listen careful, is an effect of redemption and not the cause of it. You didn't earn it. 
and your actions aren't go- your actions to try to measure up to what God has done isn't going to keep it. It stays because of Him and His love for you alone. Nothing you do is going to earn it. Nothing you do is going to keep it. You need to fall in love with your Christ and know this. He is going to grab you by the lapels one day and whether by grave or by trumpet, He's taking you out of here. I'll likely be preaching on that next week. Listen to this incredibly famous scripture that we all know and love. Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by what? You have been saved through what? And this, not from yourselves. What is it? It's the gift of God. Not of what? Not of works. You mean I've been wasting my time all these decades? Everybody in unison say, yeah. So that no one can boast. Can you imagine what you could boast about if you said, yeah, God liked me a lot, so (laughs) he kind of brought me... If we place our faith in human goodness, if that's where we choose to, whether we do it intelligently or ignorantly, we place our faith in human goodness. If human goodness and achieved or acquired holiness is the benchmark by which we measure Christian reality, then we, brothers and sisters, are going to crumble. We will buckle. We will falter. And we will fail when the testing comes. Because we think if we have done what we need to, which is every other religion on this globe, if I just do what I need to do to please the divinity to please the divine, to please the gods, then they'll smile on me. Wrong answer for Christianity. We don't get to do anything. And we get what is old gospel, old preaching called unmerited favor of God bestowed on us and He saves us. Why? Because we're so great, Christine. No, because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul did not say of himself, that he separated himself under the gospel. No. Galatians chapter 1. But when God was pleased, to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Boy, we're just stripping ourselves 
of anything that we could possibly have done to earn our status in Christ. You know the one thing that we did? Get born. That's it. If you're breathing, if you got born, if somebody's brought you into this world, then you are among the whosoever wills. Paul didn't say, in essence, when I perceived that I was good enough, I separated myself. It's not what he said. The Bible says, but when God was pleased, when God was pleased, pleased to reveal himself in you, he did it. What's so funny about that is that how he just categorically paved the way through the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the world. I'm going to save every last one that will come to me. So we're going to prepare for this. Paul was not overly interested in his own character despite Romans chapter 7 and 8. In fact, Romans chapter 7 and 8, if you don't know what that says, you need to read it. You need to read it because it sounds like about verse 7 of chapter 7 of Romans, right about there, it's, it seems as though Paul starts lamenting about his condition and his inability to do the things he wants to do, despite the fact that he would love to do them. But when he goes to do stuff, the flesh comes out. And it sounds like he's just like obsessed. He's not... Verse 24 of chapter 7, and you need to read the whole thing, 7 and 8. Well, actually, if you need to, start in verse 1 of chapter 1 and read from there. But this is what Paul says, verse 24. This is not going to be on the screen. What a wretched man I am. He's been talking about his own inability to live the way we seem to be thinking we ought to, wanting to do good things but not being able to do it. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's how he classifies his own actions and his own life. This is Paul. That he lives in a body of death. Who's going to do this? Who's going to rescue me? Verse 25. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a single verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 8, or verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore there is now, listen now, <laughs> because through Jesus Christ our Lord, thanks, go, thanks be lifted up to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to pause and I want you to digest that statement. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Guys, that's you. 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 Everyone who comes under this, this 
heading of believer in Christ who's been set free through salvation. The Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, the law said, don't do this. And what's our nature want to do? Go and do it. How many times have you, you go down I-45 heading toward Dallas or down to Houston, and there's a sign. This is the speed limit. And you go, forget that. And that has nothing to do with drunkenness and adultery and gossip. It's our nature. I'm in a hurry. I realize the law says that, but sorry about your luck, law. And then Elizabeth Grouser's husband has to come and get you. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did what the law couldn't do. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Woo! And so He condemned sin in sinful man. He didn't condemn sinful man. He condemned sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So in other words, you may be as flesh-filled as the next guy. And by the way, you are. But the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in you, not because you can do a thing, but because He already did. Paul was not overtly, overly interested in his own character. And as long as our eyes are focused on our own personal holiness, we will never even get close to the full reality of redemption. Christian workers fail because they place their desire for their own holiness above their desire to know the Holy One. All the while, all the while thinking that that's what God wants. Oh, He wants me flawless. He wants me holy. He wants me pure as the driven snow. Okay, let me ask you a question. You're in church. What makes you pure as the driven snow by coming to church? You know what you're doing by coming to church while simultaneously trying to be holy and righteous? You're using up my oxygen. Please leave. i got to breathe here. No. Nothing you're doing is making you righteous. God doesn't want you striving for that. That's ridiculous. He's the one who makes you holy. And because He's redeemed you and you've accepted, you're holy. You are righteous in His eyes. All you're doing is growing up into that stature. That's all you're doing. 
Give yourself a break. Live like you know you're redeemed and you had nothing to do with it. Live that way. And just grow up. And I don't mean that as a book. I mean, literally, grow. Mature. And watch Him cause your flaws and your faults to fall away. Be stripped away. Some of which you're going to find, wow, I'm not doing that anymore. And others, you're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment with the Holy Spirit. And the two of you are going to have eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose, toe-to-toe meetings about some of it. And He's going to say, you need to take that off. You need to let that go. You need to pick this up. You need to put this on. It go, but you have to let Him, or I'm going to put it this way, you have to let Him parent you into maturity. The Bible says... All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now remember what he just described. Righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. Boy, that's picturesque. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. If, if, if we are so obsessed with our own righteousness, our own holiness, our own right doing before God, and therefore thinking we're somehow earning a place with God, if that is what you're believing, then I want you to understand that the reality, the abiding reality of the redemptive gospel of God has not even begun to touch you. You have not understood what it is to be who and what you are in Christ Jesus. There is, in that way of thinking, there is... Do you know why Paul could go through chapter 7 and then jump into chapter 8 and do and say what he said? Because he had what's known as reckless abandon. If you're so obsessed with yourself and being holy and righteous, there is no reckless abandon. If you realize, I am saved, I am redeemed, and I am on my way to heaven, and Jesus is my Savior, you will lose your mind for God. You're willing to do anything for Him. Because you're not having to worry about that. Does that make sense? You're not having to worry about that. That's dealt with. It's dealt with from His throne by the cross. It's dealt with here, and it's dealt with here. You don't have to worry about that. What if your electric bills from this point forward were paid for the rest of your life? You would never have to worry about it. Not only would you shout, or if you have another bill that you'd rather have paid, that's cool too. Your mortgage, it's gone. Everybody here would be getting really Pentecostal. Because no one would ever have to think about their mortgage ever again. Ever. You could think about other things. Well, now I don't have to make that whatever it is monthly payment. I think we're going to uh, put on a deck 
we're going to install a pool. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Why? Because I don't have to think about that anymore. Guess what? God wants you in his, in his kingdom, working, going about, preaching the gospel. If you can just get the fact that you're not going to hell despite the fact that you love Jesus Christ, if you can get that off of your mind, then guess what? You'll have the opportunity to go do stuff for Christ. You'll have that opportunity to go do stuff for Christ because it's not on your mind that you're not being condemned for what you are or are not doing. You are saved. God cannot deliver me while my interest is merely in my own character. Paul was not conscious of himself. He was recklessly abandoned, totally surrendered, and absolutely separated by God for one purpose, to proclaim the gospel of God. Yes, I realize what I've been saying this morning and what I have been touching on for weeks. I realize that what I'm saying flies in the face of all or so much of the holiness preaching and teaching that we've heard over the years. I get that. I understand. But some of those teachings are what enslave many believers in the body of Christ to a life of self-condemnation. A life that says, I just can't live up to Christian, Christianity's standards. Christianity's standards aren't set by you or any religious individual amongst us. Christianity's standards are set by Him and He has already met them for you. Get over it. It's time to move on. It's time to move on. At the same time, those things that we have heard for so long prevent so many of the lost from entering the kingdom of God because our message is not to those who are the least among us. Hear me. Or maybe those who are the most influential among us. Both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. We've got to preach the gospel. Free redemption through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Not, you've got to stop sinning and you've got to get saved. That's what we spend too much time preaching on, and that's not the gospel. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Stop telling the drunkard to stop drinking. Stop telling the prostitute to stop sleeping around. Stop telling the drug addict to stop taking drugs. Stop telling the adulterer to get into his own confounded bed and start telling them that Jesus Christ has won their redemption and all they need to do is realize the fact. Stop telling people they're lost. They already know. The question is, is do you have the eloquence in utter simplicity to tell them, Jesus has already paid the price for you? Do you have that simplicity and elegance? And ask yourself this question. Let's just say you don't believe what I'm saying. That's cool. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And you go to tell these people that you, you, you rub shoulders with, you intersect life with. Why would I, after hearing you, the would-be preacher, telling me how lost and sinful I am and that I'm going to hell, why would I, a lost, undone, and broken individual, ever look to a Savior who condemns me from the 
onset for things I simply cannot fix myself. There, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't care who you think you are. You can't fix yourself. Without Jesus Christ, you're lost. I'm about to contradict myself. Without Jesus Christ, you are lost, you are condemned, and you will find yourself in hell without Him. But the problem is, I'm talking to a bunch of Christians here. And I get to do that. When in reality, you and I, we've been commissioned to tell the lost, go into all the world and tell them how bad they are. No! Sorry for those of you who clapped. If I had my buzzer, which I left in my office, eh, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and preach the good news. That's the Bible. Stop telling people how bad they are and start telling them how good He is. And by the way, by the way, let me add an addendum onto that and start acting like Him so they can see that. Stand with me. We're done.